0: All right, open up your Bibles to Matthew five. And this passage here is the, just the series of what Christ is teaching in his, this New Testament book of Matthew, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. You're familiar with it; we've been talking about it. And as you might know, you might have heard this, there's, you might have heard something called the Sermon on the Mount. It is considered the greatest sermon that Christ ever taught. And today, I'm going to be reading it from the New Living Bible. And so, I'm going to put up on the screen for us right here. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. The most popular and perhaps the most ancient teaching about how to get to heaven and to attain a good outcome in the afterlife after you die is to be good or to do good. Did you get that? It is the most common teaching around the world. Matter of fact, it's the most common teaching in too many of our churches here in the United States. And that is the way to get to heaven or the way to get God's favor upon you, is to do good things. Most world religions teach this. Many churches teach this. Many churches in this community teach that. That the way that you get to God is by doing good things. That there is a good God who lives in a good place and is reserved for good people. And the requirement for making it into this good place is, guess what, it's to be Thank you very much. You're awake. That's great. To be good. Did you say that at home? Be good. That's right. All right. Each each religion has its own definition of what it means to be good. But what they all have in common is that men and women must do certain things or not do certain things, and in order to assure themselves a spot in this good place with this good God. Now, obviously, there's a huge difference in all these major religions, but they seem to have the same things in common. In particular, they teach what I do in this life, in some part anyway, determines what happens to me in the next life. Americans who are big on everything that has to be fair, that's what we think a lot about, everything has to be fair, they see that in the way that we reward our ch- you can see that in the way we reward our children for playing sports, or competing in things. Because everybody gets a trophy. It doesn't matter whether you even played in the game, you get a trophy. It doesn't matter whether you played well, you get a trophy. Because that's fair. And you wouldn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Right? So in some parts of the world, the good people, maybe, in their context, comes back around as better people or at least an opportunity to be a better person, to have a better life. But imagine this. What if you were to show up for a class, and the teacher explains that the way she grades this class is on a very different manner and very different scale. And it's kind of like a sliding scale that she determines. And she tells you that the final exam, what you get on the final exam, is what you're going to get for this class. And then she leaves it at that. She doesn't give you material. She doesn't give you a book. She doesn't give you a syllabus. That's all she says. Class dismissed. I'll see you at the final exam. And that's all she tells you. So you have to do well. You don't know how well. You don't know what grade you have to make. You don't even know if all the answers have to be right. You don't know that if you get 50% whether that's passing. You don't know if you have to be 100% to pass. And that's the difficulty of doing well, are being good enough in life. How good do I have to be? Who decides that? Wouldn't you really like to know that before you take the test, exactly what the grade is you need to pass? Wouldn't you like to know, before you die, what it takes to enter into the next life? What if... Being good enough is not enough. In our text, we read that Jesus says that he did not come to cancel the laws of Moses. What is he speaking about there? Well, what He speaking about is that the, the first part of the Bible, all of this part here, is the culmination of about 613 laws. 613 to be exact, actually. And a person had to keep those laws to largely determine his relationship to God. So if you kept all 613 of these laws, God would be pleased with you, God would put his favor on you, and you could be pretty sure of what was going to happen in the next life for you. But notice here that Jesus doesn't say that he came, notice here that he says he came to, not to abolish it, but to fulfill those laws. He says, I came to fulfill all of them. He goes on in verse 18 and he says, all the laws that will continue until their purpose is achieved. And in verse 19 he says, and those, who keep them don't, and those who keep them and teach them unto others will be great in the kingdom of heaven. But there's another reason. There's something else that these 613 laws accomplish. Basically, no man could keep all those laws. It wasn't possible. Matter of fact, God even boiled down these 613 laws into a cliff note version of them. If you can keep just 10 of these laws, that would be good enough. And we find those laws in the Old Testament book of Exodus. And here's just a few of them. And these are the easy ones, all right? You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. In other words, you can't be having a relationship with another person's spouse, you cannot steal. You cannot lie. You cannot be envious of your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's kids, your slaves, that are, you know, and their animals, anything they have. You can't be envious of that. You can't be coveting it, as the Bible says. Now, just based on those few laws, how good are you? Did you, did you just break one? Maybe the one about coveting? That neighbor's house? I do. Did you break the one about lying? I did. Did you break the one about stealing? Mm, one time, I did. We won't go into the other ones. But did you fail even one of them? Because you see, in God's standard, failure in even one of them is one too many. His standard of goodness is perfection. So, can you say you passed that test? Can you say that you have never failed in any of them? So the purpose of this law that Jesus is talking about was to show man that he could never do enough good. That he could never do enough good to gain God's favor or to, or to work his way into heaven. The law was proof of that. You can't keep 613, so let me give you 10. Oh, you can't keep 10? Then you're in a world of hurt. What's to happen to you? And the way he emphasized this to the people who were hearing him at the time was he said that if your righteousness, this is verse 20, if your righteousness is not as good as the Pharisees, then you'll never get into heaven. And everyone's sitting around and thought, I ain't ain't that good. Are you that good? They were nudging each other like, you know, Karen nudging, you know, they're they're nudging each other right here on the front row. You're that good? No, I'm not that good. I can tell you all, none of y'all are that good. I'm just telling you right now, I know y'all. All right? So There. Are y'all mad at me? Okay, good. These Pharisees he's talking about were like the, the monks or the priests or the holy men of the Jewish nation at that time. And these Pharisees, they were professional law keepers. That's what they lived for was to keep the law. And so even at their very best, Jesus says, Even if you were to attain what the Pharisees attained, that still wasn't enough. So, going back to our teacher with his outlandish class syllabus, that there's no way of knowing what the passing grade is for the class. Let's just say that the name of that class is How to Get to Heaven 101. And Jesus just told those he's teaching that you can't ever get a passing grade. No one ever passes this class. No one ever gets 100%. And that's what the Bible says about our efforts to pass the test, to get into heaven by our own works. He says in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, no, not one. He says all have sinned, and all of of them have passed, everyone has failed the test. Those Ten Commandments, those even those few ones, everyone has failed that test and falls short. And he says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And then in Romans 3, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, by keeping all these laws, by working your way into heaven. No one can be declared righteous. So we're all sinners. We're all failures when it comes to being good enough to gaining God's favor and to getting into heaven, we've lied, or we've cheated, or we've stolen, or we've coveted, whatever. something We've wished something we had someone else what someone else has. Well, I can hear some people saying right now, "That's not fair. That's not fair." I've been I've been mostly good. I've been I've been. More better than someone else, you might say. Well then, let's just think about that. So you've been more better than someone else. So let's just say that this is how good I am at my standard. But look at, oh, Frank again. I'm going to pick on Frank some more. Frank is below me. I am far better than Frank. Therefore, I will go to heaven, but Frank won't. That's unfortunate for Frank, isn't it? But in the context of being good, there's always someone else who stands above me. There's always someone else who stands above me. And I stand above someone else. So who determines how good is good? Who determines how many good things? How many little ladies who walk across the road, observing the speed limit? Who decides how you get into heaven by what you do? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is... Thank you. The fact of the matter is that among all the religions, even among all the cultures... Around the world, everyone has a different standard of what is good. This past week, people in another nation decided that it's a good thing to be head of volleyball, a female volleyball player. This is a good thing. So do you want to use their standard of good? So whose standard gets to be the standard? Well... The standard is God's standard. And his standard is absolute purity. His standard is keeping all 613 laws or keeping those ten laws. That's his standard. That at no time and place that the standard is that you would never ever break any of those laws. Purity is his standard. Because, see, that's who God is. He is totally pure. In him, there is no sin. In them there is no wrong. In him, there is nothing that he's ever done wrong. And if we want to be in a relationship with God, if we want his favor on us, we have to be as pure as he is. And so, who qualifies for that? That pretty much leaves us without any hope of ever gaining God's favor. You can never be as good as he is. You can never do enough good. And if good people don't get into heaven and, and they not please God, then who can? So what are you going to do when you die and you open your eyes on the other side of death? And you find out that the measure was not goodness, but it was something else. This leaves mankind with only one consequence, and that's to die without God and to be separated from him. That's what the Bible also teaches. And I would guess that most religions of the world teach that if you, dis- that if you displease God, you must make amends with him in some way or another, that you, you need to make it right with him. That is, in part, that is what these Old Testament sacrifices were about. That throughout here, there were so many sacrifices where an animal had to be killed, where blood had to be spilled to appease or to please God and to atone to pay for your sins. But Jesus came. And he became that ultimate sacrifice for the things mankind had done wrong. He was the son of God who came and lived a sinless life, who never did anything wrong. And so in other words, he is the one who meets God's standard. He is the one who is pure. He is the one who is perfect. He is the one without wrong. He did it. But he's the only one who ever did it. And therefore, he could do something no one else could do. He could pay for the sins of others. And the Bible teaches and history proves that Jesus Christ died on a cross. Not for anything he ever did. For it's written that Jesus humbled himself to become a man, and then he even further humbled himself to die as a criminal on a cross. From Philippians 4, that's what it teaches us. So those people who used to sacrifice animals to pay for their sins, well, the Bible teaches us in Hebrews that Jesus serves as a sacrifice that only, that only has to die once to pay for the sins of all mankind. All mankind for all time. For what the law, Romans says, for what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man. That's you and me. He died to pay the penalty for the things you and I have done wrong. So we don't have to do good works and earn God's favor and his forgiveness for our sins. Jesus did that for us. The Bible teaches us that Christ died for us so that we would not have to. Another part of the Bible in the letter of Ephesians, it says that salvation is a free gift of God so that no one can boast and say that they earned their salvation by the good things they did. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, like we said a moment ago, God did by sending his son. But he demonstrated his own love for us in this. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Good people, I read this this week, good people don't go to heaven, but forgiven people do. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, in an American culture where fair is kind of the standard of all things, and we're slowly figuring out that that standard doesn't work, is Christianity fair? The God of the Bible makes an offer that no other gods make. He says that everyone is welcome. So, he does not disclude anybody. Everyone gets into heaven the same way. So there are not different standards for people to get into heaven. They get into heaven through the sacrifice of Christ. And everyone meets God's requirement through Jesus' sacrifice where all of our sins are paid for. And God sees that as being exactly what he demands from man. So there are some of us who have heard this a lot. And have never ever responded to it. And there are others that maybe you've never heard this before. And I would encourage you that today would be that day, that wherever you are on that spectrum of knowing God, of understanding God, of like figuring out who He is, because that's how this kind of works. It's very rare that someone who's never heard about Christ will jump to a conclusion that Christ is the one and only Son of God who paid for my sins. Most of us are coming through a place where this is what I believe and what I hear about Christ, it begins to counter my false beliefs. And so most of us have a lot of false things we believe. And as we read the Bible and as we learn about Christ, those things that we believe that are wrong... Like, that I have to be good enough, those things get put aside, and we learn truth in its place all along the way. And so, today, I'm saying to some of you who've been listening to this for a while, or, or it's even a couple of times, what's to stop you today from believing and understanding that you can never do enough and that it just takes. By faith to say that I believe in Christ. I believe that he paid the penalty for my sins. And I know I can't do it. And you don't have to understand everything about that. You just have to understand that you can't pay for your sins. That you're a sinner. That he's a savior. And that he did it. It's just a sincere, earnest understanding of that simple fact. Is there a lot more to believe, understand later on? Yeah, there is. But this is all you need to understand to come into a saving relationship with God. To come into a situation where his favor is upon you every day for the rest of your life. You never have to work for it again. To come into a relationship with him so that when you close your eyes on this side of life and you open your eyes on that side of life, that when you open them, he will be there casting his favor upon you there as well. You see what it does is that by placing your faith in Christ and understanding that he died for your sins so that you don't have to, think about all the pressure, all the worry, all of the anxiety of this life, of trying to make sure that you make him happy. Think about how it eliminates all of that. And you can have this just a quiet confidence to know that you don't ever have to worry about pleasing him in any way ever again isn't that something you want in your life today can be that day that you can have that in a moment I'm going to pray and as I pray I would hope that you might pray as well if you've never done it before and you really just simply just talk to God in your own words and you can even tell him I don't really understand a lot of what he says but I know this I know I need you to save me from all the things I've done wrong. And you want, I'll add this to this as well. Some of us, some of us believe that God could never forgive us for what we've done. Some of us has those things in our closets, way, way tucked back in the dark corners of it, that maybe no one else knows about, or maybe not many people know about. And we've convinced ourselves that God could never Forgive us for those things. And I'm here to tell you, he can't wait to forgive you for that. And to take that monkey off your back. And to take that thing out of your closet so that you never have to find it there again. He can't wait to forgive you for that. If you, when this is all said and done this morning, if you have questions about that, don't hesitate to come and find me and talk to me or talk with someone sitting around you. We'd be glad to talk with you and maybe even pray with you some more about it as you come to that own understanding in your own time. All right? So let me pray. Father, this morning, we come to you. And Father... um, I think that many people think that the Bible teaches that you want us to be good. And I think there's people in our church that still believe that. And I think there might be people who are watching this online who still believe that. But what a terrible burden that is to always have to be good enough when Christ has already been good enough, when Christ has already paid for our sins and freed us from that burden of having to be good enough, of having to do enough to find your favor. Father, I pray this morning that those in this room who've never placed their faith in you, who still think they have to be good enough, who are still trying to figure out that what this means, that today would be that day, that in this moment even, they'll be praying themselves and speaking to you. About their own condition, about their own struggle with being good enough. Father, I thank you that Jesus came and died for our sins. And that is why we praise him through all eternity. That is why we sing to him like we do before the service and before the preaching part today. That is why Revelation and so many other places talk about that we will spend eternity being grateful and praising Him and honoring Him. That is why He is so special and that there's none like Him. Today, we just pause and we thank You and we praise You and we glorify You and we honor You for that great sacrifice on our behalf, for men and women who didn't ask You to come, for men and women who don't really care if You came, for men and women who don't even believe and yet You still died for them.